0: I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana, And Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. Today, the spin has one theme fashion, revolutionary style, resistance, threats. Our main event conversation Lupita and Audrey suited, booted, rooted, but still looted. How Western fashion media claim credit for ancestral inspiration. Main event conversation two style in the struggle, fashion as armor, shield, and weapon. How black women wrap their bodies and beings. And our hot topic, Muhammad Ali, Prince, Felakuti, Masculinities of Style. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Tanisha C. Ford and Hannah Azieb Poole. Dr. Ford is a scholar and author, a historian on style. Dr. Ford's book is called Liberated Threads, Black Women, Style and the Global Politics of Soul. She's assistant professor of women, gender and sexuality studies at University of Massachusetts. Hannah Azieb Poole is British Eritrean. Hannah is a journalist, author and curator Hannah wrote a fashion column for The Guardian for several years. Her new book is called Fashion Cities Africa and it explores street style of four African cities, Nairobi, Lagos, Johannesburg and Casablanca. And Hannah is curator of an exhibition in Brighton, Southeast England, of the same name. So, on today's show, we bring you our own global mic style from Britain, Eritrea, Alabama, Mississippi, and Accra, Ghana. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank no. you. Let me join you. Our show this week has one theme fashion. Fashion. Turn to fashion. Turn to the Our first main event conversation, Black is the New Black, on Lupita Inyongo and Audrey Hepburn. Lupita, Oscar winner, red carpet dazzler, Kenyan-Mexican, rocking natural hair and the deepest chocolate skin. The award-winning actress channeled African tribeswomen and Nina Simone at this year's Met Gala in a stunning gown and skyscraper Afro hair. Lupita explained her style inspiration to Vogue's editor-at-large, Andre Leon Talley. Take a listen. What inspired your beautiful coiffure? <laughs> well,
1: the sculptural hairdos from oh. all around the world. All
0: around yeah. the world. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would like to say to you that this is very Nina
1: Simone. I knew Nina yes. Simone and you are very, very Nina Simone. It's oh, quite beautiful. Yeah, and she was an inspiration as well. A great
0: inspiration and highly creative. <laughs> You've given me a great Nina Simone feeling, a great vibe. <laughs> Lupita's inspiration, as you heard her say, was from all over the continent. Her inspiration was an iconic black woman artist-activist whose aesthetic, whose very skin was resistance, the one and only Nina Simone. And then Vogue.com rewrote Lupita's clearly articulated style references in a piece whose headline was, quote, Is Lupita the new Audrey Hepburn? Unquote. The piece featured side-by-side pictures of Lupita at the Met and the late, great white actress Audrey Hepburn with her straight brown hair in a sky-high style. And Vogue.com wrote Lupita's hairstyle was called, quote, Whoseville unquote, hair, inspired by a Marge Simpson meme. Marge Simpson, a white cartoon character on TV. A little context, the Met Gala. Fashion and celebrity meet every year at New York's star-studded affair at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Manhattan's Museum Mile. It brings photographers from all over the world to capture and snap the style, the looks, the inspiration. The Met Gala marks the grand opening of the Costume Institute's annual fashion exhibit. Each year's event celebrates the theme of that year's exhibition, which in turn sets the tone for the formal dress of the night. Guests, of course, therefore, are expected to choose their fashion to match the exhibit's theme. Previous themes have included superheroes in 2008 and China Through the Looking Glass in 2014. Here's Vogue.com with their history of the Met Gala. Over the years, the gala has become a reflection of our changing culture, not to mention an ever more glamorous arena for high fashion. Through the eyes of its curators, the Costume Institute's extraordinary holdings have evoked themes that run the gamut from historical periods to genres to individual design innovators. In turn, the galas have served to establish and confirm fashion trends through both the exhibitions themselves and the brevura sartorial choices of the guests year's theme was fashion in the age of technology and lupita reached back as we said into her african ancestral heritage to conjure and channel a technological age what vogue.com did was claim and appropriate lupita's inspiration and wrap it in whiteness lupita channeling african ancestral style was rewritten as lupita becoming new white audrey hepburn It was an individual incident that reflects a fashion industry history, appropriation of Africa, claiming dibs on heritage, tribe and history. Africa becomes a country. Africans become props, playthings, sidelined, overlooked or dismissed. But the fashion clapback is alive and well. After Vogue.com's piece went viral, Lupita took to Instagram with a video called Hair Inspiration Check." It featured her image with skyscraper hair alongside a mix of visuals of African women with similar hair and Nina Simone. Hannah azier Poole wrote about this issue in a piece for The Guardian. Hannah writes, quote, the road between cultural appropriation and homage has always been paved with potholes. One designer's celebration of the richness of Africa's fashion heritage is another's blatant ripoff, unquote. Let's talk. Black is the new black and how a black woman can be suited, booted, rooted in culture, and still have her style looted by the Western fashion world. Hannah Azir pool let me start with you.
2: As you say, this is one in a litany of, uh, of examples, really, of white culture grabbing its hands with the greatness that is African heritage and moving as quickly as possible to, to reduce it Uh, to something that's utterly white, to strip it of its blackness, to strip it of its heritage. Uh, And the fact that this happened to somebody as iconic as Lupita, who at the time, let's not forget, was talking to another iconic black person in fashion, Leon Talley, is remarkable, actually, but also just goes to show um, that you can be one of the most iconic African women on the planet. You can deliberately reference your heritage on the catwalk, you can then explicitly explain what you're doing and still white culture will seek to strip it of its blackness.
0: Dr. Tanisha Ford.
3: Yes, it was absolutely appalling to me to see that Vogue, which heralds itself as an international fashion publication, refused to see Lupita as an African diasporic subject, that refused to see how she could be drawing inf- inspiration from women from around the world, women from the African continent, those styles and traditions. But it's not shocking to me because historically that's what we've seen the Western fashion industry do, to rewrite fashion histories in ways that center Western styles, European styles, the styles from the Parisian runways, um, instead of centering African fashion designers. And that's why it's been important for me and my own research to actually go to those fashion magazines that are published on the continent to see how they're writing about African fashions, fashions for my work, in particular from South Africa, where, where people are saying, look, stop coming to our country and pirating the styles of South Africa and then ripping them off and taking them back to your runways in London and Paris and Milan and so forth without elevating our designers into the conversation. And so the pivotal moment for me is exactly that type of moment where Vogue, instead of referencing these histories, instead of being aware of this fashion history that's happening in other parts of the, of the world, they just want to promote this image of Audrey Hepburn from a Vogue photo shoot, right? So it's a way of saying we are at the center of fashion and we always have been. It's highly problematic. Um, and that's why Lupita's clapback was epic, because she's using the technology of the day to give herself a platform to say, no, actually, this is what I was saying, both, um, and I'm going to use my voice here as a way to elevate other African women, other black American women into this space. And so it really speaks to the fact that the Met Ball um, and that as a, a larger association doesn't see um, African African fashions as part of a fashion technology, right? But Lupita is saying absolutely incorrect that we are a a, a fashionable people. And not only that, we've always used the technologies of the day as a way to innovate with fashion and um, sartorial creativity.
0: It's so powerful because Lupita was literally walking Afrofuturism in her body and her being, given that the theme was fashion in the age of technology. So she was... um, creating um, a future reality within technology but with her natural afro hair um, and the other thing that's interesting is andre leontali who is with vogue mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is actually his publication he, also, he writes for the same publication and um, his um, articulation when she says from all over the continent he says afterwards from all over the world and even that moment where lupita is being specific in her geographical identification of what inspires her look. Is we're watching that be replaced and erased and um, spoken over in order for um, Vogue.com to do what it consistently does. So this is what is interesting for me. In this era, 2016, where the power of social media is the speed with which the clapback happened in 140 characters. So you had all kinds of people um, looking for and tweeting and posting Images that spoke to um, Lupita's inspiration. We saw images of Nina Simone all over the place um, and the beautiful images of her with her hair in her sky-high afro, uh, either sitting at the piano, her beautiful long neck. And what, what would it take for that road that you talk about, Hannah, the cultural appropriation meets homage road? What would it take for the cultural appropriation piece to just stop and actually pay attention to the vast wealth of inspiration that is all over this um, continent and the diaspora?
2: I like to be positive about this. I like to think it's beginning, which isn't necessarily due to mainstream, by which actually people generally mean white (laughs) fashion or the fashion industry as a whole necessarily being kind of opening its arms and finally realizing the great creativity that comes out of the African continent and the diaspora. Um, But I think the change is actually coming because there's this increased um, confidence, I guess, economic confidence. I think the creative confidence has always been there, but there's an economic confidence coming out of the continent, which actually the mainstream or the the, the fashion industry in the global north can no longer ignore. And that's why we're seeing conversations even about cultural appropriation are able to happen in forums like this because we're beginning to seize back power. All of this, to me, comes down to power. People question, you know, what, who cares about the Met Gala? Who cares about the red carpet? Who cares about fashion? It's just dresses. It's just frocks. Actually, this stuff is really important because it's about power. It's about gatekeepers. And I really believe that things are changing when it comes to those power dynamics. And that's why we're able to have conversations like the one we're having now.
0: Tanisha, talk a bit about the ways in which black women from all over the world are taking that power back by the manifestation of their style, by the ways they're claiming that style that you found through your research.
3: Right. So I think one of the things you said here is really important, Esther, and that's the the space of social media here, because social media time moves at a different pace than times in previous eras, right, before the digital turn. So if we think about this moment before, when I'm studying, researching in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of these conversations about black women, their fashion, um, the importance of, of style across Africa and its diaspora are taking place in print magazines. So you have to wait for the magazine to come out sometimes it's weekly, most often it's monthly, and then it has to circulate, right? Another um, national publication has to pick up a story that, say, ran in Drum Magazine, for example, and they have to run that story, and then black women in the United States have to read that and care about that, but in the social media age, the digital speed is much faster, and that's why I think we see black women uh, reclaiming their own styles and clapping back and saying, hey, you can't just rip that off. Or no, Kylie Jenner did not invent big lips and, and wigs, right? That like, this is white girl appropriation of black bodies, of features that we've actually been denigrated for having. And then she will take this and elevate it into style. And I think that the digital speed, the speed of the digital age is what's making these conversations happen instantly. And it's giving them greater visibility because more people have a platform to participate in that conversation. It's not a perfect democratic space, social media, but it is one that that creates room for more voices to be a part of that conversation in ways that print media was effective in earlier moments. But this, we're seeing something different that now we have to, to grapple with in the fashion industry. I agree with Hannah is having to respond. And it's not just because all of a sudden they realize the, the beauty and talent um, from across the African continent is because they realize that there is money to be made in that. Um, but it's still an important economic moment that we're living in right now. Not only
2: are we able to seize back these spaces, but we're able to talk to each other across borders, across boundaries. And so while somebody might be sitting in a super white t- town in a super white country thinking that, oh my goodness, did Kim Kardashian really invent braids? All you've got to do is go on Twitter and see your sisters going, oh, my God, no, she didn't. You know, we can have these conversations with each other. We can gain support but also inspiration and education from each other when it comes to talking about cultural appropriation, when it comes to knowing about our history. So our voices are magnified by things like social media, whereas, as Dr. Ford was saying, print and also fashion, you know, are huge fortresses. Whereas social media, though obviously you know, again not perfect, and there's an element of privilege within social media, of course, actually they're much more egalitarian than former forms of media.
3: Mhm, I totally agree with that, um, and that's why I'm saying this moment. It's going to be interesting for me, thinking as a historian, how historians are going to write about this moment right now. Like, what what space an incident like. Um, Vogue and this this horrible blunder with Lettita Nyong'o will take up in in the history books it 's a way I think we 're going to see emerging a, a of the fashion histories from across the continent with the fashion histories um, and other parts of the the diaspora because before this moment, I think those histories were rather bifurcated. When I went to do to write my book, I found that, wait a minute, I want to write about African-American fashion, but I can't just write about this in a U.S. context. There are all these other dynamics that are happening around the world, but so many people who had written before me hadn't bridged out to see what was happening in other parts of the non-white world whether that be the Asian continent, the African continent, and so forth, to see that, no, the Western world, we're not the inventors of fashion. Um, And this language of anti-fashion, or the idea that that non-white bodies are not fashionable, that in fact they're fashioned backwards, that that their quote-unquote traditional garb is not fashionable, is highly problematic. And so I think that, that this becomes the moment where we can no longer write those kinds of histories, and that more scholars who see the importance of dress and fashion to talk about global dynamics, geopolitics, Gender, sexuality will start to rewrite some of those histories.
0: And I want—I think about um, red carpets and catwalks as kind of bastions of white fashion supremacy. Um, insofar as they become places where designers are. are Reimagining the reality of the inspiration and wrapping it in in whiteness in order to deny the spaces and the fashion heritage that they're actually drawing from. I'm thinking about um, Michael Kors Afri Looks collection that made all kinds of um, headlines because of all the different tribal fashion inheritances that it drew from while naming not a single one. I'm sitting here in in Ghana, Hannah's in London, Um, Tanisha Ford's in in the United States. And it's interesting to me, I think about things like what the the fashion that was called the peplum. And because I live in Ghana, realizing that from my mother to her mother to her mother before her, that has been a style that has been worn by generations of Ashanti Ghanaian women, not called the peplum but the style is exactly the same and so to see that introduced on the um, catwalks of paris or milan or, or or london without the without the proper historical references has always been maddening so it's really exciting to listen to a historian like yourself dr ford and a journalist like you hannah giving us those citational references and then having this collective global community that is the power of social media. Yes, a different power, but a power nonetheless, because ultimately Vogue.com had to respond to the um, Lupita moment, partially because the clapback became so strong across social media and because Lupita stood up herself and was able to use the power of Instagram to do that beautiful visual um, inspiration and draw the direct line from herself to her, um, to her heritage. So I think about that black girl in Brooklyn, the um, sister in Brixton, Um, The sister out in um, Johannesburg on on Raleigh Street, sister in Accra, who is negotiating, navigating all these different influences in their um, style and creating their own style via the blackness of their own body and being. And I wonder if you could just talk about, as we close this first part of the conversation, that the way in which black women turn their bodies into fashion, even as it's kind of hostile, it's a hostile environment that they're negotiating.
3: Exactly. So one of the, the points I want to or a space I want to draw from to talk about this is the Grandassa models who were models. Many of them were from uh, West Indi- Indian descent. They were based in Harlem. They made it their goal to edutain the black masses about um, African-inspired fashions, right? So they're taking, they're they're drawing inspiration from across the continent, and they're trying to educate people on why these styles matter, why natural hair matters. These are the different natural hair looks, and this is in the early 1960s. And this isn't they're 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 knowledge behind this isn't perfect, but this becomes a way that they're trying to educate folks about the diversity of the fashion and the hairstyling across the the continent. And I use them as an example to say the the information that they could get their hands on at that time looks vastly different than the information we have at our fingertips right now, where we can actually name and cite various um, fashion designers, from the continent. Fashion designers who have roots in the continent but who might be living in places like London, like Paris, and establishing fashion lines in those those cities, um, those global fashion cities. But we can reference those things. So now the the like you said, the sister in, in Brooklyn, the sister in Brixton, she can she can actually name and claim her, her fashion inspiration. That yes, I am my my look is an amalgam of all these other reference from around the world. And then that helps us to see the global cultural and political circulation of not only the fashion itself, but also the politicized language around why Black women are making certain fashion choices, and so again, that's why I think this is such a powerful moment to be having a global conversation like the one we're having right now about the importance of fashion and its connection to um, social justice.
0: Closing thought to you, Hannah.
3: And again, it, it comes down to power and owning the
2: the right to those images and to those bits of heritage is a direct link to owning, I guess, the means of production or the creative means of production. So being able to earn, I, I hate to sound like a huge capitalist on this, <laughs> but being able to financially, I guess, as well as sort of ethically and morally, morally and spiritually be able to gain from our heritage. So when you're having, you know, incredible African-based designers, Whose work is so clearly ripped off on the catwalk, neither credited nor fiscally recompensed? um, To have those designers who are struggling with their own kind of issues as creatives, struggling with supply chains, struggling with all the things that designers struggle with in kind of difficult climates, in terms of economic climates, when you have those those creatives coming up against international fashion powerhouses, essentially. Um, and, you know, often they are losing their uh, their creative copyright, essentially. And so, again, it comes down to power. It comes down to ownership. Um, and also, feeding back to what Dr. Ford was saying, you know, on this, this question of kind of navigating our own spaces, our bodies as black women, we are constantly told our bodies are not good enough. Our hair is not good enough. Nothing about it is good enough. Not even the clothes we wear are good enough until white women wear them. And that's why these things are so important these conversations are so crucial wanna these
0: That was the first of two main event conversations. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Dr. Tanisha C. Ford and Hannah Azieb pool The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's Across Studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. Time for our second main event conversation, Style in the Struggle. For black women throughout history, fashion is more than clothing, always has been. We have found style within struggle, political, social, civil, societal, physical, sexual. In Dr. Tanisha Ford's book, Liberated Threads, Black Women, Style and the Global Politics of Soul, Dr. Ford explores how everyday women engaged clothing as resistance, as revolution, and as statements of identity in the civil rights era of the 1960s and the black power movement of the 1970s. Black women's clothes were more than cloth and fabric. They were shield and armor and sometimes weapon in a society hostile to black bodies, black curves, and black beings. Dr. Ford goes global and talks about young women in South Africa going on anti-apartheid marches, rocking hot pants and boots as an act of resistance. Superstar Beyonce was just awarded the Fashion Icon of the Year by the Council of Fashion Designers of America, known as the annual CFDA Awards. In her acceptance speech, Beyonce noted a tradition of African American women in her family for whom fashion was lifeblood. Inspiration, service, education, struggle, and yes, armour. Take a listen.
1: (laughs) My grandmother was a seamstress. My grandparents did not have enough money. They could not afford my mother's Catholic school tuition. So my grandmother sold clothes for the priests and the nuns and made the uniforms for the students in exchange for my mother's education. She then passed this gift down to my mother and taught her how to sew. When we were starting out in Destiny's Child, High-end labels, they didn't really want to dress for black, country, curvy girls. My mother and my uncle Johnny, God bless his soul, designed all of our first costumes and made each piece by hand, individually sewing hundreds of crystals and pearls, putting so much passion and love into every small detail. But When I wore these clothes on stage, I felt like Khaleesi. I had an extra suit of armor. My mother actually designed my wedding dress, my prom dress, my first CFDA award dress, and my first Grammy dress, and the list goes on and on and on. And this to me is the true power and potential of fashion. It's a tool for finding your own identity, expression and strength. Soul has no color. No shape, no form. Just like all of your work, it goes so far beyond what the eyes can see. You have the power to change perception, to inspire and empower, and to show people how to embrace their complications and see the flaws
0: and the true beauty
1: and strength that's inside all of us.
0: Let's talk Style in the Struggle. Dr. Tanisha Ford.
3: Yes, yeah, so I think one of the things that was really powerful about Beyonce's Beach, was that she talks about her grandmother, who is a seamstress, and how she uses her services to help pay for Tina Knowles' education. And then Tina then uses those skills that her mother has passed down as a seamstress to create the costumes for Destiny's Child when established fashion houses would not design for these young black girls, that they would not Um, give them clothing that they could wear earlier on in their career. So the idea of passing down this tradition to me is really central to this idea of why style and dress matters for black women. It's all of those, the, the narratives that are passed down from generation to generation that we then kind of magically implant or in, in, embed into the fabrics themselves, the beads, um, the zippers, right? That, that, that Those survival narratives, those narratives of joy, those narratives of pleasure, the narratives of, of resisting violence, to me become part of what makes up the garment, right? And so when we decide what we wear each, mo- each morning, we have, we're literally wearing our ancestors on our backs we're wearing those, those narratives of resistance that we've learned both directly and indirectly on our bodies as we leave the house. And for me, when I started writing Liberated Threads, it was that idea that was in my mind as I thought about my own mother who designed her own clothes in the 1970s, who was a black feminist, a black nationalist, and all the things she taught me about my black body and why it mattered. When, when in the 1980s, she adorned me in Black is Beautiful t-shirts and, you know, talking about how the the movement wouldn't be, the revolution would not be televised, right? I'm wearing these T-shirts as a young girl. This is how I came into my understanding of my my black girl self. So for me, style is very much integral to our everyday struggles as black women, as part of a larger black community, as part of a larger African diasporic community as well.
0: Hannah Aziab Poole.
2: The style... As Dr. Ford is saying, is so integral into who we are and how we see ourselves, whether we like it or not, other people will be constantly making assumptions about us. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, a, a proud Eritrean, but I'm adopted, so I grew up in a white family. I grew up in Manchester, a very white city. I went to a very white school. I was never going to fit in as a black girl. And so eventually, without realizing what I was doing, I decided to try to stand out, but on my own terms. And the key way I did this was through style, was through identity, through fashion and, and clothes and through rocking an Afro and through trying to find people who would deal with my natural hair, to trying to find incredible designers who were in touch with their African heritage because actually I was never going to blend in, so I might as well stand out on my own terms. And then fast forward, you know, 20, 30 years and... I'm still doing that, and so are many of our sisters. So it might be that when you're in a boardroom, you're wearing an incredible piece by Maki O, or when you're in a, you know, if you're in essentially you're on a white carpet, on a red carpet, you're directly referencing your cultural heritage in a space of whiteness. And that's so powerful. And that's why, again, these things are so key to identity, but also to structures of power and, you know, the, the idea of who is and isn't beautiful essentially tells us who are the gatekeepers, who are the gatekeepers of beauty standards, but also, again, who are the gatekeepers of power. And black women are constantly having to battle against those assumptions that our bodies are only good for certain things, that only certain types of bodies are acceptable. Uh, and then when they become acceptable, they're unacceptable in, in, in the form of whiteness. And one of the tools we have in our armor is style. And that's why it means so much and it matters so much when that style is culturally appropriated.
0: It was really um, moving for me when I was reading the blog on your book, um, Dr. Tanisha Ford, because I was thinking specifically about the idea of a history where your body as a black woman feels like a landscape of consistent and repeated traumas because of the kind of violence that was the everyday reality. Um, I was thinking about black women having an intimate relationship with violence and therefore style becomes this particular space where the relationship you have with your body is about pleasure and about power. So you are um, owning how you wrap or tie your wrap or your do-rag, your owning the kinds of earrings you're going to drop and why you're going to drop them. That if you're in the corporate room, you might rock an amazing um, scarf, which is the symptom that is you and only you and speaks to your identifications. For me, as a a, a journalist in, in London, I remember working on, you know, I was really serious journalist. I was doing current affairs and I was doing law, but I've always loved, loved, loved fashion. And I'm definitely the daughter of an Ashanti Ghanaian woman who adores color and fashion. And I loved it too. So it was always hilarious to me. It was how people knew that I was not a New Yorker because I never understood New York black. And in the dead of winter, when it was freezing and crazy, I would be the the sister, the chocolate sister rocking all white just because. Uh, I think about those days when there was a restriction in the kind of reporting that I could do. And so my accessories of different types of beads and color were expressions of specific identity. And so I think about that, the the history of black women's bodies as being physical landscapes of struggle and how they engaged style in order to change that relationship with their body and reclaim parts and pieces of themselves when so much of what they were doing was in service to um, other people. And I wonder about your thoughts about that, Tanisha.
3: So I write about this, what I call a, um, a cycle of pleasure, violence, and innovation that gets at exactly what you're saying, Esther. This idea that we take great pride and pleasure in what we wear um, as a result we, are, we, we face everyday social violence and even physical violence, sexualized violence, but out of those things, we continue to innovate. And the innovation is an extension of our humanity. It's us reclaiming our humanity even against all of these traumas, these emotional traumas, physical traumas, uh, social traumas. And that innovation is really why I think um, – white supremacy is really trying to take back that that's why they even appropriate they want to rob it's it's a way to try to take the very humanity that we are manifesting through our clothing as a response to um, all the things that we have endured as a people as women as as black women around the world and for me I, I think about this, in particular about this, the, the body as a landscape, in that moment where when as a, a black girl you realize that your body looks different than some of your, your white peers, that you're, you're curvy and you're thicker. And that's one thing that Beyonce definitely references in her speech, where she says designers didn't want to make clothes for us curvy country girls. You know, this idea when you, when you, when you have that moment where you realize that, oh, these hot pants look different on me than they do on, you know, Teresa in my class, right? Uh, they, and because of that, my body is read as, hyper-sexualized, as hypersexual in a way that hers is not. And because of that, I am read as deviant. I'm read as um, criminal. I'm read as doing something wrong. Right, So when black girls then start to celebrate our curves, we're not doing that because the fashion industry now says that curves are in. We're doing that because we know what it feels like to be singled out. Because even a school uniform sits differently on you than it does on someone who doesn't have the curves that you do. Or that color looks different on your darker, deeper skin than it does on the white girl that sits next to you. You know, so we know what it means for our bodies to be both hyper-visible, but then also invisible at the same time. And so, again, style becomes that space where we can create a space for ourselves in ways that others would never have done for us. And that's why, Hannah, I think your story is really moving when you tell this story about growing up in Manchester and saying, hey, I may as well claim the fact that I look different and I'm going to live my existence on my own terms because black women, we've been doing this for centuries and that struggle continues to today.
2: Thank you, Dr. Ford. And, and it is exactly what you say, that combination of at the same time, the, the duality of being hyper-visible and invisible. And that really is black women's truth in so many spaces.
0: I feel like um, what African-American women and African women are really channeling is that soul power going, stretching all the way back historically. So what we need,
1: we got 10.
0: Time for our hot topic. The late, great Muhammad Ali just passed away. He joins Prince and Falakuti as ancestors. Muhammad Ali was an iconic boxer whose stance on war, race, social justice issues made him a hero. He was also a man whose sartorial elegance reflected the times and whose masculinity was expressed in his threads, by his threads. I think of another great loss, Prince And his style and sartorial elegance and how his color, royal purple, the color of royalty in uh, the Ashanti tribe, my tribe, his love of frills and lace, his wearing of heels expressed his masculinity. And I think of the late great king of Afrobeat, Fela Kuti, a Nigerian, a Yoruba man, and his style and its expression of masculinity. Muhammad Ali, a Muslim man, an American. Prince, a Louisiana man. Fela, a Yoruba man. Let's talk style and global black masculinities. Hannah Azyeb Poole.
2: So we have this, to my mind, really exciting um, and super relevant thing that's happening right now with black men and masculinity. And I think the way in which Muhammad Ali is being heralded so much so, for so many reasons, but style is in there as well, really speaks to how much uh, black men's Masculinity expressed through style is being pushed forwards. I think often black men have been left out of a lot of these of a lot of these conversations. Certainly, we're you know they're discussing discussing it with each other. But in terms of fashion in general, men are often left out of these conversations. And so I'm excited by this um, this notion of heralding some of our great black male icons. I think the notions of masculinity and global style. Are almost exclusively um, better expressed through black men's style. Um, be they in Accra, be they in Addis, be they in London, be they in New York. I think those conversations aren't perhaps as um, developed as they are here. So, as they are in terms of women. So, people, the study of black masculinity in terms of style is not um, is still often seen as a kind of, you know. P.S., you know, and let's also talk about men, essentially. That's what, that's what happens when it comes to black men. Um, but even if we take things such as, you know, as hair, for example, which we're discussing about in the context of black women all the time, actually you look at what's happening with black men and hair, which is a kind of, you know, a huge example of uh, a way to show masculinity and also creativity. You're seeing more black men now growing their hair out. You're seeing more black men now, um, you know, be that in a sharp suit with an Afro you're seeing expressions of hair. You're seeing more facial hair. I was talking to a, um, an Indian brother the other day who was telling me that that the kind of the hipster beard that we're seeing on all these white dudes actually um, it kind of came from a colonial time when the. When the white, white British colonisers were in India, and the um, the local guys all had these, you know, incredible beards, and just laughed at them. They you know, the, the local guys were just laughing at these white guys that were so cleanly shaven. And so these white guys started to wear these big beards, and then they kind of brought the beards back. And now these beards are suddenly, you know, now they're these kind of it's a hipster beard. So these conversations about masculinities as they transfer borders, I think, are really important. We're having conversations about black dandyism. We're having conversations about Um, what that means in terms of sexuality. We're having black male-style icons
3: finally, I think, kind of taking their crowns. And to me, that's really exciting.
0: Dr. Tanisha Ford.
3: One thing that I see happening with the passing of Muhammad Ali and this conversation about him as an icon, you know, Muhammad Ali as a political actor, as someone who resisted, um, it's really important because it helps us get back to the man, and who he was, because for so many younger people, Will Smith is Muhammad Ali, right? They're they're used to seeing him in his theatrical, you know, presentation as Muhammad Ali. But for us to get back to Muhammad Ali, the man, and to see images of him circulating, for us to even be able to have a conversation about what he wore, I think this is a really important moment. Um, And so when we look at him then, we see how he's, very often photographed in tailored suits, slim-fitting ties, bowler hats. You know, he was a sharp-dressed man, and there is a way that some people might see that as um, not in alignment with these radical politics that we're saying that he espoused. But really, for me, we have to, I, I want people to understand why a black man dressing in a suit is a transgressive act. And I think the most poignant example I can give of that is of Emmett Till, who, of course, was just a teenage boy when he's with his uh, visiting family in the South, in Mississippi, and he is accused of whistling at a white woman and is brutally beaten, and um, his body is tied to a cotton gin fan. But what's important here is that his body was stripped of all its clothing. And we know that Emmett Till, who was from Chicago, was a sharp-dressed young boy, always wearing a hat, a fine suit, and the white men who brutally murdered him stripped his body of, of those fine wares, right? So there's a way that a, black, a, a well-dressed black man is an affront to the American um, social order, So in Muhammad Ali's insistence upon wearing fine threads, there's a way that he is being transgressive in that very act. Um, And so then it also makes me, though, think about this framing of black masculinity and the conversations within the black community, at least, in in the United States about style, that that very much this idea of black style is rooted in a conversation about the reclamation of black masculinity. If we think about black cool, if we think about even phrases like fresh and dope, those concepts are a way of celebrating a particular kind of black masculinity. And that's why I think this conversation we're having in contemporary America about black masculinity is interesting because the skinny jeans, for example, is, having us flip this idea of black masculinity on its head, right? We are querying masculinity, if you will. We are having conversations about uh, heteronormativity and why that is a limited framework for us to understand black masculinity and what that looks like and what that should look like. So when Prince passes, to me it's interesting then how the conversations about black masculinity allow us to have more expanded conversations that move us beyond normativity. So I think – Having Prince and Muhammad Ali pass so close to one another has given us the space to have this broad and reaching conversation about black masculinity and what that means and what it means in relationship to black style.
0: And I think sitting here in um, Accra, um, Ghana, and watching all the different expressions of masculinity for Ghanaian men's fashion. So you will see a brother rocking the sharpest of um, suits where the, the the trouser leg has often been skinny. So skinny is new on the European front. You check the streets of um, um, Accra and Brothers have Rock style in a particular way. You might see a brother rocking a, um, it looks like an Oswald Wateng cut suit, but there's a fabulous... African print with these beautiful colours, or a pocket square that's a particular type of cloth, or that comes from a particular type of um, of, of tribe—not necessarily kente, but kente or ashoke or some rich, gorgeous wax print—and it's always colour on the on the certainly in Accra, you're always seeing colour and the way men move with colour and change colour, and so it's really exciting to me to explore the myriad expressions of black masculinity when you take them from a global context. And so the um, passing of Muhammad Ali, God rest his soul, and of Prince, God rest his soul, so close together, and then thinking about um, Fela Kuti and Afrobeat made me uh, want to explore the ways in which men express themselves through style and the objectified um, black male body historically also finds comfort in a particular type of style that is really, really, really powerful, really, really powerful. So closing thoughts to you both.
2: I guess my closing thought really is that it's such a, it's such a blessing really and it's such a, a privilege to be able to have conversations right now about what constitutes black style, what constitutes African fashion, if there even is such a thing, to be able to break out of some of those stereotypes and to challenge the narrative, the existing prevailing narratives, um, and some of the lazy sort of fashion shorthand that is used when talking about black style and African style. Um, you know, one of the things I try to do with, with the book and the exhibition Fashion Cities Africa is to get away from this idea that African fashion is one monolithic thing. And in the same way, black style is not one monolithic thing. There are subcultures within subcultures, cities within cities, and really I'm so excited by the way in which these conversations are developing, the way in which the, kind of the fashion-conscious diaspora are also bringing things back home, and the way in which the real fashion revolution is happening amongst sisters and brothers, and to me that's such exciting news.
0: So on that note, let's, um, as the Yoruba say, shakara. Shakara is a Yoruba word meaning show off, or as African-Americans would say, show out.
3: Chacarau, yo, gente! Chacarau,
0: Something There's else. something else, the, the after-world. afterworld, a world of never ending happiness, you can, you can always see the sun, the sun. Day, day or night. night, so when you call, when you call up that call shrink, up shrink in Beverly, Beverly Hills, Hills, you know the, you one. the one, doctor, be alright. I'm your hour thank you to dr tanisha ford and hannah azia pool you can find information about both their books on the spin facebook page thanks ladies thank you so much it's
2: a total pleasure
0: thank you to the spin production team sound editor mark torres distributor loretta rucker and the aaprc Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armar.
1: This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.